0: Welcome. Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 20. We're going to read from verses 1 through 16. Uh, And before we do that, uh, please pray with me. Father, we come before you. Lord, we need to come before you. Lord, we humble ourselves before you because we acknowledge that we cannot in our own strength do your will. Lord, we need Your Spirit to help us. We need Your Spirit to illuminate the Word to us. We need You to soften our hearts to receive this Word. We need it to be planted deep. And we need You to cause the increase. Help us, Lord, to stand firm on the truth of Your Word. Help us, Lord, to look to You for strength. Help us, Lord, to see Jesus as glorious and as beautiful and as excellent as he is. In his name we pray. Amen. Hey, so this morning I'm going to, like I said, read from Acts chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. Fair warning from time to time, I'm going to bring up the map because there's a lot of different uh, cities here and regions that we need to make sure that we identify. So in verse 1, Uh, the text begins by saying, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. So we know that Paul is in Ephesus. Uh, We uh, read about this uh, last week. He's in Ephesus. Uh, He was involved in, uh, maybe you could say he was involved in the creating of chaos, but really the chaos was started uh, by some craftsmen, a man by the name of Demetrius. He heard the word of the Lord when Paul preached the gospel, and these people became enraged. Uh, They knew that if people were going to turn away from their idol worship that their own business, Demetrius's business, was going to become bankrupt. And so he got mad. He created and stirred up the people um, into a chaos, and uh, a riot ensued. They went into this really large theater that can fit 25,000 people. We don't know if the theater was full, but nevertheless, the city was in confusion and chaos. There was a big commotion. Finally, after a, several hours, about two hours, Uh, The uproar ceased, nothing happens. The people are described as being irrational, and they leave. So Paul was in Ephesus. At this point, though, he's getting ready to leave Ephesus. And before he does, he's going to send for the disciples to say bye-bye. And that's what you see in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said, Farewell, and departed for Macedonia. Verse 2. When he had gone through those regions, so he's going from region to region, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So the text says in verse 1 and in verse 2, Paul is going from region to region. He's give, he, he is giving uh, and providing not just encouragement, but much encouragement. You see that in verse 2. Um, I, 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 we know that if Paul was going to encourage the church, he was going to do it in a unique way. And what I mean by that is, Paul was not about to go from church to church to say, hey, brothers and sisters, you've got this. I know that you're brand new in the faith. I know that you were just established, and I know that there's hardships, but you, you were made for this. Nope, that's not what Paul would have said. When I say encouragement, I I mean a gospel-fueled, biblically-informed encouragement. Encouragement. Paul would have gone to these churches facing hardships and difficulties and discouragement. And he would have said, dear brother, dear sister, look to the Lord and look to him and find in him strength. Don't look to yourself. Don't try to uh, conjure up strength on your own power. You can't, you won't because you're weak, but God is Strong. We know Paul would have said something along these lines, because when he ends up writing to the Ephesians, he says this in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, he's writing this to the people, to the church. Be strong, not in yourselves. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so Paul is going from region to region, encouraging, much encouragement to people who need it. And the way he's doing it is by reminding them that there exists in God, for his people, strength. So look to him for strength. And so Paul takes on this task. Uh, he's encouraging them along the way. He's encouraging the different churches, the different brothers and sisters. He finally lands in Greece. Of course, we know that the region is Greece, but specifically, he's in the regional unit of Achaia. And he's, he's, he's going to hang out in that region, the text says in verse 3, for three months. So there he spent three months. Now, his plan after those three months was going to, his plan was to go from Achaia to Jerusalem And we learned last week that the purpose of him wanting to go to Jerusalem, to set sail, to go to Jerusalem, was to bring aid uh, to the poor among the saints. So that's what he intends to do, okay? How does that work out for him? Check out how his plans are completely altered. Verse 3, so there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, again, we're talking about Jerusalem, he decided to return through Macedonia. So again, I'll bring it up here on the screen. Paul stays here for three months. He has every intention to sail here in Jerusalem to bring aid to the poor among the saints, and yet it didn't happen the way he had planned. Sure, his intentions were good. Yes, his motives were probably pure as far as we can tell. He probably prayed about this. He probably was prepared. He sought wise counsel and then all of a sudden, as he was about to embark on the ship to set sail, just like that. A sudden, unexpected turn of events. A plot is made against him by the Jews, just as he was about to set sail for Syria. Now listen, it would have been quite human for Paul to become discouraged, and perhaps even shaken a bit. He had aspirations. He set for himself a very clearly outlined and defined goal. He had hopes. They were genuine. They were from a sincere heart. Uh, It was all about helping the poor, and yet in a moment's notice, his plans changed. I don't know exactly what Paul must have thought. I don't know what you would have been thinking. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you had your hopes set out to do one thing, uh, the path being Apparently crystal clear, it was within your reach, and then all of a sudden, those plans were altered. I don't know how you would have dealt with it. Uh, I know how I've dealt with sudden changes in my plans in the past. Not always a godly response. But what we don't see in this text, when Paul's plans are completely altered, what we don't see is Paul becoming discouraged and frustrated and even angry. Um, he literally just says, "Well, okay. I guess I'm not going by ship." And he turns around by land and he goes up through the regions. I think Paul would have been familiar with Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. No doubt Paul would have been familiar with Isaiah chapter 55 verse 9. Paul was a student of the Old Testament. And the Lord says here in Isaiah 55, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, Paul recognized that life was not a matter of whether or not plans would change. His plans would change numerous times. I'll provide several examples uh, later on where Paul's plans uh, severely changed. Sometimes uh, to Um, the impediment or threat of his very life. Um, But what didn't change was Paul's chief end, Paul's highest purpose. His chief end, his highest purpose, was in in any and all circumstances to glorify God and to enjoy God. He goes on later uh, in several of his writings, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. uh, Setting uh, a path for us to recognize that we can enjoy the Lord, even in difficult circumstances. Now, it's interesting because uh, after his plans are suddenly altered in verse 3, after the Jews make this plot against him, uh, what Paul does is uh, he picks up some few people along the way from different regions to bring alongside uh, with him to Jerusalem to help the poor. So look at verse 4. Check out how many uh, different people from different regions accompany him. Verse four says, "Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus." So the Berean, the Thessalonians, from Derby, the Asians. Yes, Paul's plans changed, but what God did for him is He supplied for him a band of brothers that would not only encourage Paul, but would help him encourage churches along the way. So where do they go? What happens to them? Look at verse 5. These went on ahead, and were waiting for us at Troas. So Luke obviously is recording, and he's saying when he says us, he means himself and Paul. So he's saying that these people, Sopater, Aristarchus, uh, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Took a kiss and tro- Trophimus, they, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we, set, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Paul finally meets up with this band. Um, after five days, he meets up with them at Troas. Uh, And he stays at Troas, Paul stays at Troas for seven days. Quick question, what happens on the first day of those seven days? The answer, one of the most, um, um, (laughs) one of the greatest narratives of all time. Look at verse seven. This is fantastic. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul just kept talking and talking and talking. Verse 8, There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So here's Paul. He's preaching for a considerable amount of time, Eutychus wants to listen. He is, he's trying to pay attention, but, but he finds himself thinking, man, this, this brother Paul, is—he it's midnight and he's still talking and, and Eutychus is by the window. He's getting sleepy. His eyes are, are getting heavy and he's falling asleep and he falls out the window and he dies. That is a killer sermon. And I apologize for that lame joke. Look at verse 10. But Paul, so he sees that Eutychus fell out and he died. Paul went down and bent Over him, and taking him in his arms, and he said, "Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him." In other words, Paul, when he bent when he bent over him and picked him up, uh, suddenly uh, Eutychus came back to life—a resurrection. Verse eleven. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them (laughs) a long while until daybreak. And so. He departed. And they took the youth away alive. That's Eutychus. So he's alive. And they were not a little comforted. They were greatly encouraged. Now look, when you're discouraged, remember the resurrection, namely the resurrection of Jesus. Death could not hold him. He is stronger than death. And more than that, he promises to never leave you, nor nor, nor forsake you. The resurrection of Jesus is our greatest hope. And so here's here's just a, you know but a, but a picture where we see a resurrection certainly not on the scale of the Son of God Jesus, um, but in, in any event, Eutychus listens. It's too long for him. He falls. He dies. Paul bends over him. Eutychus uh, has life back in him. Paul continues to talk, and the people are greatly encouraged as Paul is about to leave, and that's what we see in verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asus, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So Paul decides to walk instead of sail to Asus. Again, he's probably just offering encouragement to even more people by way of walking on land. Verse 14, And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to M- Middelen, verse 15. I'm going to butcher some of these names here. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite of Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. You see, Paul, he knew that if he was going to go back to Ephesus, his heart was so for the Ephesians that he knew that he probably would have stayed there longer than he wanted to, because he really wanted to go to Jerusalem and help the poor among the saints. And so verse 16 says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. We'll find out, as we continue to read a little later, not today, uh, that... Uh, Even though he doesn't go to Ephesus, he will ask for their leaders to come to him so that he can give them a final heartfelt farewell uh, before he leaves for Jerusalem. So that's our text, verses 1 through 16 in Acts chapter 20. Let me give you some two big ideas. The first big idea, as we consider this passage, is the need for God's people To receive gospel fueled encouragement. Paul's aim as he leaves Ephesus is to encourage God's people. And notice how I said encourage. What I did not say and what I don't mean is that Paul was intending to flatter God's people. Paul was not merely trying to cheerlead God's people. He was not trying to say, hey, you, you're awesome. That's not what Paul was doing. Uh, Paul would have been familiar with Proverbs chapter 26, verse 28, which says that a flattering mouth works ruin. Paul was not trying to say, great job, bro. You're doing well in the city, in this church plant. I know you got hardships, but you... You're strong. I don't think that's what Paul would have done. He knows the consequences of flattery, where you try to impress someone by um, exaggerating the truth, right? We know we're not the best at such and such. We know we're not the smartest at this or that. We're not. And we don't need to be lied to, and we don't need to lie to one another and try to flatter. The Bible says, actually, it works ruin. No, what Paul was doing. He was offering gospel encouragement in where Paul says, I know you're facing hardship, church. I know, dear brother and dear sister, that this is getting hard. I know. Look to Christ and find his strength in your weakness. You see, that's gospel encouragement. Gospel encouragement is not a way in which we try to flatter one another and uh, try to pump one another up with flattering words, not in the least bit. That works ruins. Gospel encouragement is turning our attention to him who has an unlimited supply of strength for his people. That's gospel encouragement. We need gospel encouragement because we will face hardships, and seasons of discouragement. We're going to experience a sudden loss of health, a deterioration, a sudden change, where we find ourselves depressed, despondent, where we feel abandoned. You're going to find yourself, listen, you will find yourself falsely accused, being falsely accused, being mistreated unjustly. You will receive words of discouragement from others. If you've not received any of those things, you've not lived long enough. I've been there on the receiving end of harsh criticism, of discouragement. I've been on the receiving end of hardships. And something tells me, so have you, because we live in a fallen and broken world whereby we discourage others and we are discouraged by them. And what we need, and what God's people need, what His church needs, is gospel-fueled encouragement, whereby we look to Him to be our source of strength, so that in Him we find unlimited power, and we look to His might, not our own, but to His might to help us, to, to, to lift us up, because we can't do it in our own strength, because we don't have any. We're weak. And this is what Paul gives to the church, because the church is not full of strong people. It's full of wounded people who need strengthening, the strength of Jesus. We need to be cared for and looked after the greatest pastor and shepherd, Jesus. And in the book of Isaiah, God says this to his people. In chapter 43, verse 1, God says, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Why will God instruct his people to not fear? Is it because God is going to say, fear not, I created you in such a way in which you have superhuman strength. That's not what we see God saying. It says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because you're strong? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. When you pass through the waters, the word says that God will be with you, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. That is gospel encouragement. It's God-centered. It's all about what God does for his own people when they find themselves going through hardship. And you will, dear brother and sister, find yourself going through hardship. But look at what Psalm 28, verse 7 says. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song, I give thanks to him. Psalm 118 verse 14 says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Jeremiah chapter 16 verse 19, o Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. You will experience the day of trouble. And in that day, He is your strength, your stronghold, and your shield. What about those who are vulnerable? What about for the widows and for the fatherless? Where does their hope and help and strength come from? Psalm chapter 68, verse 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. What I am not saying is that the cure to your discouragement is a verse. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, here, dear brother, you're discouraged. Take Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 7, and then call me in the morning. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that when we find ourselves in the day of trouble, when we find ourselves discouraged, when we find ourselves walking through hardship, I am not going to tell you to convince yourself that you're strong enough and that you were made for this because you weren't. What I want you to understand is to look to the word that reminds you that in those circumstances, when you are weak, God is strong. He is your strength. That's what Paul reminds the churches. And that's what the word tells us even today for God's people. In fact, the Bible pronounces that the that our God is a God who will bring about abundant comfort. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3. Paul declares, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's no self-comforting here. We receive amazing comfort by the God of all comfort. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, dear brother and dear and dear sister, you will share abundantly in Christ's suffering. And here's the good news. So through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Listen, in Christ, we are not only promised abundant suffering, you will face hardship, dear brother and sister, but you're also promised abundant comfort, one which flows from the merciful hand of our Lord and Savior. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, verse 5, God is given the title, or Paul reveals that God is the God of endurance and encouragement. This is what Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 15, verse 5. He writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. God's encouragement and endurance will even allow us to live in harmony with one another. (laughs) And who are the one another's, by the way? They are people who we've probably discouraged or who have discouraged us at one point or another. How can we we live in such harmony with one another in this fallen world? Because of the God of endurance and the God of encouragement will empower you to do so. He will grant you to live in such harmony. Encouragement, by the way, or to encourage literally means to give someone courage to instill courage in someone. So that means that gospel encouragement is to make someone more determined, more confident, more hopeful in God, in Christ. We instill confidence, not in ourselves, but we instill confidence in Christ. That's gospel-fueled encouragement. And by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 I won't go there but Paul encourages the churches encourage one another. And so just on a practical note, dear brother, dear sister, encourage one another. Whip out your phone right now. I don't care. Whip out your phone and encourage someone. Dear brother, dear sister, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you and that I love you and that you can find an abundant and unlimited supply of strength in God because he loves you and he cares for you and he promises to never leave you nor forsake you. So I just want you to know dear brother, dear sister, as I'm writing this text to you, look to Christ. He has an unlimited supply of strength for you. That's gospel encouragement. But the other thing that we saw in this passage was that oftentimes plans change. We saw that with Paul. He was set to set sail uh, and go to Syria and Jerusalem. But the Jews made a plot against him. It wasn't the first time that his plans had changed. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, we are given uh, maybe this this long list of descriptions of how Paul's plans uh, changed, even to the point to where his life was in danger. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, He describes it for uh, this way, that he was the recipient of far more imprisonments with countless beatings, and often he was near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. So five times at the hands of the Jews, he received 39 lashes with a whip that was designed in such a way that every time it whipped your back or your flesh, it was designed to penetrate and cut and do some damage and harm five times he received that but look at 25 verse 25 three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned he was uh he was the re- on the receiving end of rocks being thrown his way to the point to where he was left for dead three times i was shipwrecked a night and a day i was adrift at sea he was stranded at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That is nakedness. This was not his plan when he set out to encourage the brothers and the sisters. And yet his plans changed. And he says, yeah, This is what I was on the receiving end of. Imprisonments, countless beatings, near death, stranded at sea, naked, exposed, beaten with rods, whipped, rocks thrown at me. I was left for dead. But you know what? My chief end in life never changed. My chief end was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. By the way, that is question number one in the Westminster Catechism. In, West, in the Westminster Catechism, question number one says, What is the chief end of man? What is our purpose in this life? Is it to be a successful mom? To be a successful dad? Is it to achieve the highest form of academic education? Is it to, to live a life that is uh, in, in, in a romantic bliss of a relationship? Is it to have so many people like me? Is it to beat my neighbor? And in, in who can have the most likes on my social media feed? What the heck is my purpose in life? Should I be a doctor? Should I be a nurse? What should I be? Am I going to be single forever? What's my purpose? And if you've ever asked those types of questions and you've never received an answer, you know just as well as I know the pressure is almost insurmountable, but that those are the wrong questions. The question is not: Is my purpose to be a nurse, a doctor, a mother, a father, uh, uh, in this wonderful relationship with another person, uh, beautiful marriage? Uh, th- that's that's the wrong question. And, and, and by the way, those are the wrong things that we ought to be considering as the chief end and purpose of our life. No. The Westminster Catechism graciously reminds us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever in any, in any and all circumstances. Yes, you can do this as a struggling parent. You can do this when you can't find the right relationship. You can do this when your friends are discouraging or when outsiders are discouraging, when your health is deteriorating, when the economy is crashing you can still glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, your chief end. Whatever you do in any circumstance is to bring glory to God, to glorify Him. But it is also to enjoy Him forever. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Notice he's not saying rejoice that your circumstance is such and such. Rejoice that you find yourself here and there. No. You want to enjoy God forever. And so what Paul says is rejoice, not in those things, in the Lord. And then he says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The chief end of man is not to be a successful parent. It's not living, living happily ever after in some sort of romanticized relationship. It's not to have a successful academic degree or a well-paying career. It's not to be liked or popular. It's not to accomplish goals and tasks. It's not to, co- to have control of every situation so that things just go the way you planned it. That is not the chief end of man. Your purpose is not ultimately to be a wonderful doctor or an amazing nurse, or someone who's married happily ever after. Your highest purpose, your greatest honor, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever in any and all circumstances. How? In His strength. In His might. We look to Him for our strength and our joy. And our hope and our confidence that he who formed us and made us has redeemed us and he loves us and he will never leave us nor forsake us especially during discouraging hardships do I want my oldest son Caleb to be an amazing guitar player Do I want Caleb to be an outstanding basketball athlete? Do I want him to be an amazing musician? Sure. No pressure, Caleb. (laughs) But that's not my highest and chief goal for him. My chief goal for my son and all my children and my wife and for you, dear brother and sister, is to glorify God and to enjoy Christ forever. This is how John says it in 3 John chapter 1 verse 4. He says, "I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And God is truth." So he has no greater joy than to know that you are walking in the truth, with God glorifying him and enjoying him. Forever. Let me wrap up with a prayer from the Valley of Vision entitled Weaknesses. And it says this, O oh Spirit of God, help my infirmities. When I am pressed down with a load of sorrow, perplexed and knowing not what to do, slandered and persecuted, made to feel the weight of the cross, help me, I pray thee, If thou seest in me any wrong thing encouraged, any evil desire cherished, any delight that is not thy delight, any habit that grieves thee, any nest of sin in my heart, then grant me the kiss of thy forgiveness and teach my feet to walk the way of thy commandments. Deliver me from carking care and make me a happy, holy person. Help me to walk the separated life with firm and brave step and to wrestle successfully against weakness. Teach me to laud, adore, and magnify thee with the music of heaven, and make me a perfume of praiseful gratitude to thee. I do not crouch at at thy feet as a slave before a tyrant, but exult before thee as a son with a father. Give me power to live as thy child in all my actions, and to exercise sonship by conquering self. Preserve me from the intoxication that comes of prosperity. Sober me when I am glad with the joy that comes not from thee. Lead me safely on to the eternal kingdom, not asking whether the road be rough or smooth. I request only to see the face of him I love and to be content with bread to eat, with raiment to put on, if I can be brought to thy house in peace." And by God's grace, he will bring you to his house in peace.